Hey listeners, it's Alex, your host of Entrepreneurs of Asia, a show where we profile and highlight the lessons learned from founders, entrepreneurs, and investors shaping and impacting the startup ecosystem of Asia. Welcome to episode three. This week, we are continuing with our friend series. Today's guest is a friend of seven to eight years or so and is an amazing entrepreneur. Amy Chun is one of the co-founders and CEOs of Amazing Grease, a very successful international food startup based here in Malaysia. As usual, we will profile her early days in the first half or so, and in the second half, try to distill lessons from her entrepreneurial journey. Feel free to see the description to skip ahead to different sections that are relevant for you. In this episode, we will hear what is it like to grow up in communist China, Amy's journey of trying to fix a broken justice system, saving bonded slaves in India, seeing what is it like to go to Harvard University, learnings from management consulting, and the story of building an international multi-million dollar food startup only after raising one round of funding. This is an episode you don't want to miss. Let's dive right in. Welcome to the show, Amy Chen. Thanks, Alex. Happy to be here. How have you been since this whole COVID crisis? Uh, actually, surprisingly good. Really good? I thought you are the type of person who can't take um, being stuck inside all day. You mean business and personal life? Yes, correct. Oh, Absolutely. You're, you're thinking business I was thinking business already. <laughs> uh, personal life-wise, it hasn't been too bad. We found uh, loopholes in this apartment. So, for example, the stairwell, uh, the 36-level stairwell has become now our new workout uh, (laughs) stairwell, which has been really fun. And it helps us to listen to podcasts such Mm -hmm. as this. So that's Mm -hmm. been really good. You just discover new, interesting uh, podcasts from different people. And we've been cooking a lot more. uh, And we've been kind of contacting a lot of friends. And as you get older, you don't feel like you need to go out as much. And this gives you a perfect excuse to say, to feel good about not going out. So Mm -hmm. that's been great. All right, great. So I, I be, you know, just to start, I wanted to kind of jump back to your very early days. So you were born in Shanghai, right? Yes. Um, what was Shanghai like back then? Shanghai in the mid eighties. Sorry, I have to. I gave away my age, so <laughs> I have to kill you now. Uh, I am. I'm twenty, as obviously you know. Um, <laughs> so Shanghai in the eighties is still coming out of the communist. Oh gosh, what am I saying? But it be killed. Uh, it is. It is still a communist country, but it is coming out of the hardcore communist days mm-hmm. where everybody was paid the same, and there's mostly state-owned enter- enterprises. Everybody worked for a SOP, mm-hmm. state-owned enterprise. No, SOE. And uh, you needed rations to buy everything. Mm-hmm. So I remembered uh, in my early memory that I had both cash and rations when I wanted to eat salon bao. So, you know, mom was like, well, go downstairs, get your salon bao. Here's, you know, I don't know, four renminbi and your ration. And if you finish the ration, you've got no more salon bao in the month. So you better savor this very, very carefully. So, and I, when I, whenever I tell people that, they get quite surprised that actually we had rations because you were only allocated a certain amount of oil, sugar, rice every month. Yeah, that's because yeah. uh, Ch- China only opened up in what, the 90s? Right? Early 90s with Deng Xiaoping, yes. Yeah. And uh, how old were you when you were living in, up to what age were you living in Shanghai? I was living in Shanghai until grade two. So I was seven. Seven years old. Yeah, I was seven years old. And then why did your family end up leaving Shanghai? My mom, I think, was a capitalist in heart. (laughs) Okay. She, I remember one of the early re- days when I asked her mom, why did you leave Shanghai? Cause she was trading in steel at that time. In, in China. In Shanghai. In Shanghai. Like she under was a, regime. under the communist regime, she was stealing in steel for some reason. 
uh, as a woman. Mm-hmm. So, so the other thing about Shanghainese women is that there's this uh, social perception that Shanghainese women are quite strong and independent and very entrepreneurial, yeah. and the, the men in Shanghai are, are, I guess, a bit more home. Home bodies, or they can be more domestic, okay. meaning that they are able to cook and clean and look after kids in the same capacity as women. So from a very early age, I was like, well, of course men can do all the home chores okay. because that's what I grew up. My dad did, yeah. and my uncles did, and women expected that of men. So that might that's explain very cool. some of your uh, relationships. It, it, it definitely <laughs> well, it, it made it made this whole equality okay. And I think that's one of the cool things the communist government did was they equalized the role of men and women very early on. I mean, probably not from a place of uh, we really generally believed in quality, but more like, hey, we need everybody to work. Mm. So you know, it doesn't matter if you're men or women. Uh, so my mom actually felt everyone was being paid the same in China back then, and she hated that. Okay. So that is really uh, I laughed at that because. Because it, it, it felt like, why would you want to be singled out differently if everyone's being paid the same? You know, we all had the same standards of living. We all had, you know, the government gave every married couple housing, kind of a bit like what Singapore does right now. Mm. Uh, so you get allocated everything from the state. Mm. Uh, but I guess for her, she was like, eh, I don't want to have every what everyone else has. I want, I want something more. I want to be able to own my own, I guess, reward. So she encouraged my dad to to leave Shanghai. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, I've known you for what, maybe eight years now, I think, or maybe seven years. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting story. So I, I would imagine that that must have been a very strong influence for you, uh, your whole mother, and her being like a very strong figure in your life early on. Was that like did she leave a strong impression on you, or? I mean, definitely. I mean, one is you have a strong female figure in your life. Yeah. For for mostly good things, I remember that um, actually also early on in my life when I tried to help out in the kitchen, uh, I, I I definitely remember her saying to me, "Your place is not in the kitchen. Get out." Uh, so I was like, "Well, I want to learn how to cook," and she's like, "Get out." <laughs> would you say this is uh, common, or were your your experiences unique to say your peers in China? I don't think it's unique. At least for Shanghai, it's not unique. I don't think I've heard any woman from Shanghai saying their parents expected them to be the homemaker. In fact, all kids, especially women, were encouraged to be their own self. Mm-hmm. I grew up with aunties, so you know, mothers, sisters, and uh, mom sisters telling me you need to make it on your own. Also because of a lack of trusting men, I think a lot of women are just so cynical because I guess at that stage they were saying a lot more divorces. So they were really cynical. So the, the number one advice is you need to make it. Um, you need to be financially independent. Mm. Uh, so, so you can't depend on men. So these are very early themes you had in your, your childhood growing up. It was driven both from pride and fear, I think. I think it's not always good to be like, you need to be independent because you can't depend on anyone else. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I understand what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, it's a question of how healthy it is, I guess. And yeah. it, it, I guess people are product of a lot of their context. So I, I can see what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. And then so your family ended up in Melbourne, Australia? Melbourne, Australia. We couldn't make it to the States like your parents did. Okay. So, uh, so, you, so you tried going to the yeah, US. They, they, my mom's like, number one priority, States. Okay, can't go. What happened? How come they uh, I think they, they said it was full. Really? Okay. Yeah. So they, they kind of checked my tickets army. America's full. Yeah, they were like, oh, these are policies. I think they went on student visas at first. And I think Australia had uh, a, a, a greater opening for students. Mm-hmm. And this is being before or right when the Tiananmen Square happened. So mm-hmm. really interesting yes. we're talking about this because the Tiananmen Square 
anniversary has just passed. Yes. And given what we're seeing right now in the States and UK and Australia with all the protests, it really does remind me of uh, what happened at that time when my parents went to Australia. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, um, the, the, the thing that I always tell people that know me for a while is we were only given citizenship. My parents were only given citizenship in Australia because the Australian government under Bob Keating at that time had decided to give all Chinese students in Australia amnesty. Mm-hmm. So they, they saw what happened in Tiananmen Square and they said, you know what, if you don't want to leave and go back to China, you can stay here. That's huge. So very similar, That's huge. similar yeah. to what the British are doing now with the Hong Kong citizens. And History repeats, yeah. yes. And that was only uh, a few decades ago, which, which is crazy if you think about it. It is crazy, yes. Yeah. And so is it fair to say you were poor immigrants? We were economic immigrants. Yeah, I like to, I definitely like. So what were your struggles like? And uh, was there like a culture shock? Uh, are there any stories about that? Uh, culture shock is the least of it. I, okay. I think I went there with no, uh, no language abilities. So I was seven. Uh, and the Chinese education is very much like study your butt off. Uh, you need to know all your al- alphabets, but there wasn't English in the curriculum back then. Like I think in the eighties, you know, English is, is still seen as a very foreign thing and you're so patriotic as a Chinese person, you don't want to learn it. And so I went to Australia and my mom had to sit me down and, and teach my first ABC at the age of seven. Mm-hmm. And your mom's English wasn't too good. My, Engli- my mom's English was definitely, I think she only knew the ABC and she taught that to me. <laughs> She's like, okay, you need it. Yeah. And, and I remember going to school and and there was only me as the Chinese kid and there was another Vietnamese kid. So I don't know if you know, but Melbourne has a huge amount of Vietnamese immigrants, yeah. right? Both because of the, uh, of the Vietnam war, but also for economic, you know, uh, migrant, uh, same as us. So my first friends in Melbourne were actually Vietnamese kids. Oh, okay. So we were all hanging out with each other because we, we all knew we couldn't speak English very well and we were always a target at school. Did you feel you were, culturally closer to Vietnamese people? Absolutely. I learned how to swear in Vietnamese before English. <laughs> I learned yeah. how to count in Vietnamese. Yeah. I learned how to say really bad words. Because I, I find it interesting because when I was growing up in America, um, very different. Of course, I was born there, whereas you were born in China. Uh, I hadn't really noticed it until I started hanging out with international students in university. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I, I felt it was kind of weird, more at ease than versus kind of this whole bro drinking fat yeah. culture. You know? Yeah. And, so I find it interesting that, you know, maybe when you were young, that I guess maybe it's the, the plight of minorities. They kind of have to band together. And that, so I guess yeah. what I would be interested in, how did it affect your identity? It, it was very confusing at first because you knew you were different. Mm. Uh, you were so different that, you know, not only because of what you ate, but you couldn't even speak the language at first. Mm. Uh, and there was no ESL, right? Like English as a second oh, language classes. Really. Not when I went to Australia. I think there were so few of us. I didn't think there was a need to create a separate separate class. So everything you learn, you kind of just have to go with the mainstream and you start picking up words. And I remember being in the shower and trying to mimic the sound of English because mm-hmm. I was so shy. I didn't know how to learn it. I just had to remember what a sound like and try to mimic the sound of other people having English conversations in the shower so that no one can hear me. Uh, and then slowly you just started picking it up. But it was it was painful, I think, from an identity perspective. Uh, for the longest time, even till my early 20s, I still saw that I was different and I was not Australian. Okay, so you always saw yourself as Chinese then? 
I was a different kind. No, no bucket, right? There wasn't. There wasn't. A, there was no bucket. I was an Asian kid in Australia. I was an Australian, and actually, I get nervous whenever I spoke to a white Australian male. I don't know why male, because I think you tend to see them as authority figures. Mm. But if I was standing next to a white Australian male, I I I would get nervous. I would sweat a bit. <sighs> I would, I would, I would always be scared that he would turn around and go, "You, you don't belong here. Who are you?" Has that ever happened? No, it's never happened. Okay. It's never happened. But I, I, I have this fear of okay. white Australian male. I don't have that fear anymore. <laughs> okay, that's good to hear. <laughs> I don't have that fear anymore, but I used to. Okay, and it was crazy. So, yeah. what, what kind of kid were you then? Um, were you shy? Were you? Because right now, these days, I think if most people know Amy. Right, uh, you're very outgoing. You're extrovert, uh, full of energy, full of life. What were you like as a kid? I I think I was very. Uh, first of all, I was a fat kid too. I don't know if that played into you know immigrant <laughs> immigrant Chinese girl who was also chubby. Uh, I I think I was quite optimistic. Still, I was bubbly. Uh, I liked making friends. Uh, I was still outgoing regardless. Like I think uh, I try to make the best of it. And I remember being quite uh, feminist even as a kid, uh, you know, and, and also fighting for the rights of LBGT. Like I don't know how it is, but I I, I think I, I, I've met a friend early on in my in my childhood who was gay and mm-hmm. then ended up like fighting other kids, getting into physical fights with other kids mm-hmm. uh, to defend the rights of people who were different or people who were uh you know, looked down upon because mm-hmm. I kind of saw that as I needed to be that defender mm-hmm. of rights because I was I was in that kind of like minority group as well. So I think I had a really strong sense of justice growing up, and obviously, you know, life was never easy. So, uh, you know, I never took things for granted. Where do you think that sense of justice came from? Chairman Mao. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, actually, it, it's true because when you're growing up in China, you you, you always heard about these. Uh, national stories and narratives about, uh, you know, um, this, uh, this, this soldier who would see five cents in the road and then pick it up and give it to the police, or he would like carry fragile elderly people across the road. Uh, so, so actually the Chinese government does ingrain that to you quite early on. Like mm-hmm. you need to be a good person. You need to be doing the right thing for society, uh, which I, I think I do appreciate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I kind of like this conversation because you, you hear a lot of Western media. They're just always China bashing. Um, always yeah. more than negative things. I think every government has a lot of negative aspects. They also have a lot of positive aspects, yeah. but people don't really focus on the positive aspects. Um, so I guess, you know, what, what, what is something you would like people to know about China that they, they should know about either, you know, maybe there's a misconception or a little known fact or and maybe your general thoughts about China in general? Yeah. Ooh. Oh my gosh, this is deep. Um, I, I think Chinese people are inherently very insecure and their their national narrative is one of oppression. The national narrative is we've been oppressed for so long, um, especially by the Japanese, the Western countries. They came and they 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 bossed us around, they took our things, they they made us give them like, you know, territories. Mm-hmm. Uh and, and it's just 
oppression, right? Mm-hmm. So I think this is the first time where they feel like it, they can be a bit more, um, they can identify themselves as not just second class citizens of not the oppressed people. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes when you speak to a Chinese person, instead of going, oh yeah, you're not standing up for, you know, human rights and, um, you're not sympathetic about the rights of Taiwan and Tibet and mm-hmm. even Hong Kong right now, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a massive issue at the moment. I think it's useful to be empathetic about the national narrative. Mm-hmm. That people have, they don't feel very confident as a as a as a nation. I mean, they, they, their confidence come from getting rich, but <laughs> that's never a great reason to yeah. feel confident. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's it stems from being also in a, in a modern sense a young country, right? Yes, Just like how America is still relatively yeah. to Europe. So I think that's a good point. And I guess that that takes you to you then you know kind of go through your childhood. Which sounds it's um, it sounded tough, but at the same time you sounded quite strong. In, in, in a different kind of way, you know, you had a sense of justice, uh, you were fighting, fighting for your identity. Uh, and then you end up in uh, eventually going to Monash University, right? Yes. And uh, I think I, I had to learn about this through through hiring a lot of uh, my ex-staff who are senior managers. They actually went to these uh, very good schools in Australia. And I think Americans just won't know about this, but there's something called uh, the Group of Eight, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And these are the top eight universities in Australia. And uh, would yeah. you say they're the equivalent of the Ivy League? Um, I, I mean, I, I, I have experienced what it like, what it's like to be in an Ivy League, you know, uh, university in the, in the States. And I don't think we put our universities in the same pedestal mm-hmm. as the Americans do. Okay. Uh, I think one is just maybe there's so many people in America that, you know, there's a bit more stratus, a uh, uh, bit more division between the different level of schools. In Australia, if you lived in Victoria, which is where Melbourne is in, uh, there's a 90% chance you'll just go to a school in Victoria. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's a few universities. There's usually the top two um, in each state that then you kind of pick. Uh, I realized when I was in the States that actually the whole, the whole country is your, uh, is, is your playground. And actually there's so many possibilities mm-hmm. of different schools you're in. And, and most kids don't necessarily think that they need to go to the university in the state that they're in. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's something that's a really different concept for Australians. Australian kids go to the university, they go to the best university in their view in the state that they live. Okay. So the, the yeah. whole idea of education is just also very different from an Australian perspective. Yes, it's much more independent. I remember that Australian universities train you to be quite independent. Uh, there really isn't like a big hierarchy between, oh, I went to University of Melbourne or I went to Monash and there's a big difference in, in, in any way. Mm-hmm. So your chances of being hired after that. I mean, look, everything when you look back at it seems easier than it was back then. I remember there is still like um, fights between University of Melbourne and Monash University. Uh, but when you look back, you're like, actually, there's so little difference. Uh, yeah. It shouldn't have been an issue. Mm-hmm. There, yeah. In general, the quality was probably the, the quality was very similar, which meant actually it was just large lecture classes. Uh, and actually during my time, they started doing uh, e-lectures back oh, then already. I think it was like early, early 2000. Mm-hmm. Uh, and older kids just started doing e-lectures mm-hmm. and, and actually going to school, there was very little point. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually when I compare the Ivy League American education with Australian education, I do see a huge gap. Okay. I do see a huge gap. And I don't think Australian universities are um, very comprehensive in the whole uh, 
character development. Mm -hmm. But again, I was an Asian kid where my parents didn't know what universities could offer. Mm -hmm. So I knew a lot of my law graduate friends, they would be very involved in mooting or debating Mm -hmm. and they would be part of university council. But I never thought about that because that wasn't the environment I grew up in. There were never possibilities for me Mm -hmm. in the first place. That's an interesting point. So like your your parents weren't as tuned into what it could really mean. So how important was it for you to succeed in school? Like, for example, if you didn't do well or dropped out, what would you be doing? Um, was it like, a, it wasn't that, was it a matter of, you know, if you, you graduate, you are now a new social class or what was what it like? Yeah. Uh, okay. So my parents had some expectations of my schooling, but they also didn't know what was possible. They didn't, they never went to any teacher conference okay. meetings. Like, so it was like zero idea. Um, and, and, and I remember when I got my, um, equivalent to SAT results, uh, I think I was the top 0.7% of the state. Okay, so you did very well. So, so I did, I ended up doing very well. And, and they, I remember my parents were just shocked. They were like, Oh, we didn't expect you to do this well. This was for university? These were, these were university yeah. entrants, right? Um, but they, they would not know what's on offer and mm. give you proper advice because they didn't know how to succeed in this new country. Why did you do so well? You know, I think it's a double-edged sword question. It's it, it goes to a sense of, well, I did well because I didn't find the subjects hard. But again, then maybe I could have pushed myself a bit more and excelled even more rather than being satisfied with just doing exams well. Do you think it could have been a, a combination of timing too? So for example, you had stayed in China and went through a different system. You wouldn't have been as a high percentile? Uh, good question. So I think this whole schooling system is really screwed up. If I may say so, the, the whole take exams to prove that you can do problem sets and you can memorize formulas and, and, and it's about kind of just trying to do problems without understanding why. Mm. I think that's really screwed up in, in, in general. Okay. And that's, uh, that's the Australian that's system. Australian. And that's, when- and, and they asked you, what do you want to be for the rest of your life at the age of 16? Oh my God. Okay. So almost, almost European too, to a degree. Almost European, but Europeans at least have no pressure to do anything in life. So they end up doing PhDs. That's for very (laughs) different reasons, I guess. But I mean, very early on, if you don't do well in high school, you're tracked to um, like blue collar work, right? Uh, right, yes. right, or TAFE, like our technical uh, yeah, institutes, technical our technical schools, yeah. which actually my parents should have given me that option because you get paid a lot more as, <laughs> as a techie, um, yeah. as, a, as a plumber. Uh, so at the age of 16, they ask you to write what specialized degree you want to do. So people will say, I want to be an engineer, mm-hmm. I want to be a doctor, I want to be a lawyer. There isn't such a thing as a general degree. And what, what did you study then? I studied law and economics. And just in case I couldn't figure out what and I want to do. When you were 16, you had to say this. Yes. At the age of 16, you already had to like write out what it is you want to study in university. Right. And then you end up like aiming for the results to get into those courses. And then you do a four to five year degree to become a lawyer or economist or engineer or a doctor or accountant. And that's it. How did you come to that conclusion? You wanted to do law and economics. Those are two it was really things. silly. It was whatever's the hardest thing to get into without trying to be a doctor. So I knew I didn't want to be a doctor. So, you know, as any respectable immigrant family, you want to be a doctor. Yeah. Um, I decided early on that wasn't it. So I, that was the course, the hardest to, to enter course. So it, it really wasn't very well guided. Okay. So it was just kind of, uh, you were young, didn't have guidance. And you're just like, didn't have guidance. So you did whatever your ego told you to do. Okay. So yeah. uh, this is your earlier twenties, I guess, by the time you finished school, what, what did you think about the future in your career then? 
I thought I was going to be successful in the very traditional definition of successful as all the other immigrant Asian kids. And the definition of success is you want to be a high paying professional. Um, and you would have made it if your company gave you a company car. Like a company car. A company car company. was forever ingrained into me as the <laughs> definition of you made it. Yeah. If you made it, your company gives you a car. Oh my God. Right? I feel it's very um, old school, <laughs> traditional family business, right? I, yeah. Asian, it's so crazy. Yeah. And then, you know, the definition of success is having one mortgage or multiple mortgages. Mm. Isn't that crazy? And the definition of success is a st- stable life in a respectable suburb with a mortgage and company car. Where, where do you think this came from? The wish of economic migrant parents who didn't okay. have it, yes. whose only wish for their own lives and, their par- and the lives of their kids is mm-hmm. to not take risks, um, which is very strange because they took risks yeah. to leave the country and start anew. Well, I guess you could frame it differently. Maybe for our parents, is it was more about... Um, Almost closer to life or death. Right? If, if I right, don't leave right. here, we're not going to have a real life. Right. And exactly. So I guess they were. It was not a necessity. Yes, necessity. Right. right. And, and, the, and, the, and the reason why they went out wasn't because, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we did something different? It would yeah. be like, we need to make it. Yeah. Right. It's like chasing yeah. opportunity um, versus maybe yes. worrying about risk. Yes. Because uh, the, down, the downside is much worse. So, the, the downside yeah. is much worse. Okay, yeah. So that's, that's, that's interesting. And then you went through university thinking this and then. Uh, you graduated and then eventually you are head delegate of the Junior Board of Education to Netherlands? Yeah, I know. Sounds how did random. It, it was really random, but I will explain how this came about. So in my last year of uni, uh, like many successful law students, you needed to do an exchange in Europe, mm-hmm. right? Or America, right? But yeah. usually you go somewhere fun. Uh, it's, it's a way to reward yourself. You know, no one took it seriously. Uh, your marks didn't matter when you're on exchange. Did you know that? I didn't. Um, actually, I kind of knew that. Well, at least for my case, when I studied abroad, uh, the, the weighting is much different. Okay, okay. Our, ours had no weighing. So okay. basically, it was a free pass. Nice. Go to Europe and, and you can do whatever you want. As long as you pass these subjects, we don't care yeah. how well you did. Um, I think that trip ended up changing my life in very different, in, in spectacular ways. So the first thing that happened to me was that uh, I had non-Asian Australian friends. Uh, for the first time. For the first time. And that was very, very scary because all through my life in Australia, I had mostly Asian Australian friends. And, and this is you moving from Australia after you graduate to the Netherlands. To the Netherlands. For this yes. new job. Uh, for this exchange. For the exchange, yeah. So I was still uh, doing my last year of uni. Um, I remember moving into the same room as a, listen to this, Jewish Australian girl. She was white. Uh, her family, she, her family was Jewish. She's not really, uh, she's not very religious, but they had Jewish roots. Uh-huh. And I remember thinking, I've never met a white Jewish person. And you lived in Australia. And I life. lived in <laughs> Australia my whole life. Uh-huh. And so she kind of taught me how different, um, people could be. And I had to learn about Australians outside of Australia. That's interesting. Uh, which is crazy. So all my, I had, I, I made a point to not have a lot of Asian friends during that year. Is I that made a point after you met her or before? Um, during the whole exchange. Okay. So, so she was my roommate, but we lived in a student dorm. Uh, and I lived with Italians, Greeks, Spanish people, Americans, French people, um, people from all over the world. Uh, and I guess that really opened my perspectives. I grew so much in confidence. I was able to uh, rethink my identity as an Asian Australian person mm. and question some of the uh, past definition of success and what I wanted to do in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so any- anyway, so I finished my exchange 
Um, and then I saw this ad from a university in a local university uh, asking for a trainer in Model UN. I've never even done Model UN mm -hmm. at that point of time. I've done some debates. I've done some mooting in, in the past at law school. What, what is mooting? Mooting is debating for law students. Okay. Right. You, you basically, the, they give you a law case and you have two sides. Okay, you know, so, so you, you're, you're, it's very nerdy, but you use case studies, but it's a, it's a debate. It's a debate, um, on a case using case law. Mm -hmm. So that's mooting. Um, so I applied for the role at this, um, random university in Southern Netherlands and then I got it. And you had never done Model UN. I've no never experience. done Model UN. What made you think yeah. you could just do this? I, I don't know. I was like, I did, I had debated before. Okay. And by the way, I wasn't very good. <laughs> uh, I, but I loved it. And I went for an interview and they liked me. Uh, so I ended up taking a job and then extending my exchange for another six months. Okay. So I basically said, okay, I want to take on this job. It's not going to be full time. It, it actually ended up becoming full time, but I can actually study the rest of my semester in the Netherlands. So I ended up spending some time in the Netherlands. And, uh, what was the job? The job was to train 32 Dutch university students in how to think critically about international relations and prepare public speaking and debating so that they can go and compete at Oxford and Harvard in their model United Nations conferences. How did you do You had no experience? You I had no experience. And yeah. then, so how, how did you figure that out? I had a partner, so they hired me and another girl, and she was Dutch. She actually went through that program the year before. Okay, so you had some help. So I, I had like, oh, okay. wow. So there's actually a whole student organization who's funded by the university um, to do this. So, so it, was, it was really great act of civil, uh, civil organization and university activity, and it was great. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sensing a pattern here from, from your early childhood to, to your schooling. You, uh, there's a lot of hardship a lot of resilience that's probably getting developed over time and, and your ability to maybe to kind of uh, just try things that are risky, but, you know, you end up somehow persevering and learning, which is very, very pertinent to entrepreneurship, which probably I think sets a good foundation. But I guess back then you weren't thinking about Entrepreneurship. At all, right? No, no. I was thinking about how to change the world, actually. Okay, so very <laughs> idealistic. And, very idealistic, yes. And then um, I guess you kind of went through this whole uh, experience of training for this uh, this uh, head delegate, right? Yeah. Um, then you ended up going to Harvard? Uh, yes. So actually from that group, I met a lot of uh, alumni from the program because they were so, uh, I guess, enthusiastic about this whole international relations. They all wanted to become um, diplomats or members of the you know, United Nations. Um, a lot of them actually told me that there's this cool program called the Masters of Public Policy at the Kennedy School. Uh, so already the name of the school sounds super uh, left-wing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I thought it was really cool. There were public policy schools that looked at how to improve society, how to improve government, how to improve uh, the, the the communities that we lived in. So that's why I, I applied. I wasn't particularly interested in business back then, to be very honest. There was no sense of business in my endeavor back then. I just knew that I wanted to do something that changed the world for the better. Okay. Uh, and, and, but actually there was a, there was an experience between the Dutch experience and Harvard that really brought me to Harvard, which is my year of volunteering in India. Oh, okay. So that's yeah. not on your profile at all. It's not? Oh, no. no. Okay, so I'm really quite proud of that, actually. When I graduated from university, when I finished the Dutch university work, I actually volunteered for a year in southern India, in Chennai, 
or Chennai. And I was helping a uh, NGO to rescue and rehabilitate bonded slaves and underage girls that were undergoing human trafficking. Mm-hmm. So it was really, I remember my first time in India. I, I mean, absolutely haven't been to India before. Uh, I think my third day in, they, they threw me in a, in a van and we went to a rice kiln. And they say, we're going to rescue people. I'm like, what? <laughs> what is what is going on? And then, you know, it was kind of a undercover operations. We had to wait until the factory owners left. And then we quickly dashed to the factory, uh, opened the door, got this family or a couple families into the van or into the truck. And I kind of just stared at this family and they stared at me. And it was the most awkward moment. They were like, who's this Chinese looking girl? And I'm like, who are you guys? Uh, and, and to and to bring them back to the NGO and uh, see people record their information. I was part of the legal team. Mm-hmm. So I was helping the lawyers, the, the local lawyers, the Indian lawyers prosecute people who were uh, who, who were, you know, keeping slaves or trafficking underage girls. That's crazy. Yeah. That was crazy. Yeah. And then how did you jump from Netherlands to India then? I, I guess it was it was on the path of social justice. It was path of so you were looking for an opportunity. I was looking work. for opportunities to 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 keep right. um, doing social justice work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So and then you kind of go through this crazy experience. With how many months was this? This was nine months. Nine months. Okay. Nine so- months. And I funded like I raised my own funding to be there. Okay. I kind of asked friends to send me thirty dollars a month. I was like, if ten of you send me thirty dollars a month, then I have three hundred dollars a month in India. That'll be fine. Yeah. Uh, so I, I was living on friends' donations. Even though I had a, I, I actually had an offer from one of the big fours in Hong Kong. So okay. it was one of the big legal London circle, magic circle firms, uh, super high paying. So all my Asian Australian friends who did law with me were all part of that scene, right? So they had a beautiful job lined up mm-hmm. in a corporate job in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that their path was pretty clear and they were successful, right? They, they yeah. were on their way to success. And I remember getting that offer and then just, turning that down and going to India and raising money on my own to volunteer for a social justice organization. That's crazy because uh, you just told me in in high school, your dream was to have a company car. My dream was to have a company car and, 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 be in this big corporate office where my parents can go, wow. Yeah. And it seems that I guess uh, you're you're right. So moving to Europe was just massively life-changing. Moving to Europe was massively life-changing. Yes. Uh, I I guess while this is happening, is is Harvard in the back of your mind? Because there's influence from Uh, Netherlands to... There was influence in the Netherlands. So I heard some kids, alumni went to uh, Harvard for that program, but it wasn't still very clear to me that I wanted to do that until I discovered that in India, one of the biggest issues with all these crimes is actually the criminal justice system. Mm. And it's such a, such a, it's 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 a crazy time right now to talk about criminal justice systems because mm-hmm. it is really the the highlight of today, right? Examining the brokenness of that system. Because I, I I was like, wait, you guys could only do what you do because uh, the police and the courts and the local governance system is broken. Yeah. Like you all know each other, yeah. <laughs> and and because because we went to present evidence to the local tussle doors who effectively had. Um, power to um, uh, to mobilize the police force to do something about these issues, and and actually a lot of these issues were very well known in the community. It's not, oh my god, we have slaves, really. Uh, a lot of people knew it. Uh, it's just that the, the there was such a brokenness in the system that 
the powerful and the rich had re- such good relationships with the local council and the police station. The police were not always like uh, my dreams were broken when I realized the police were, could be corrupt. Mm. I was like, "What?" So you lost your idealism. <laughs> you, you well, you, I didn't lose my idealism. I just said, "Actually, we should start fixing that." Mm. I, I didn't lose it. I just said, "Actually, I I want to stop fixing the symptoms of the problems. I want to fix the root of the problem." Mm. Uh, so that's why I decided that was a straw that pushed me to apply to to Harvard. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. So you, oh, which is very interesting. So you actually had some really, really life changing practical experience. I had life changing practical experience. You needed to have. Yeah. You needed to be doing something. Yes. Otherwise, you wouldn't have known that you needed to probably go to a more official capacity or institution to help start yeah. approaching to solve that problem. I mean, yeah. I guess is, is it really necessary for you to have gone to Harvard to do that, or why? Why did you think you need to go to Harvard to solve that problem? I, I think I wanted to learn. I wanted to expose myself to more issues in the world. I realized that I didn't have a lot of experience, uh, and actually, my experience proved me right. Like the the level quality of discussion, the exposure to um, philosophy and theories and real life experience that people brought at that institution was was life changing and it was invaluable. You couldn't have gotten that anywhere else. And I think, look, you know, Harvard's just a place that brings the right people together. It's not necessarily itself that is giving the best quality education. Sixty um, percent of your time is spent in extracurricular extracurricular activities where they're bringing, say, General McChrystal. Yeah. Uh, or they bringing uh, the UN secretary, or even they bringing um, you know someone who's led an organization that mobilized people during um, the the Cuban you know revolution and whatnot. So you end up just hearing exposing yourself to people who have done amazing things mm-hmm. uh, that they start inspiring you, giving you ideas of what's possible. Mm-hmm. So again, when when American school says you can be the change you want to be, I think that they. Um, they effectively force you to to really you know challenge yourself to do that, mm-hmm. um, which I really do appreciate. I mean, as much as you want to criticize the American individuality, individualistic men- yeah. mentality, I think that you have to give them credit that they really do empower people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, it sounds like I, I actually wanted to stay away from this, but it sounds like you're saying so many good things about Harvard. Um, what would be some of the bad things then? Some of the bad things are I I think. I don't, I don't think there's anything bad I want to say about the university. It's just that I didn't use my time very well there, I think. Mm, okay. uh, I was so – I felt like I was in a candy store and I had so much to learn. I want to do so many things that I stopped enjoying myself. I, I was there to do – to go to as many conferences, to go to as many speeches, to do as many courses as I can because you're like, oh, my gosh, I only have two years. And in that two years, I have to do everything, right? Like I would ride from the divinity school to the business school to the um, – public health school to the law school and then because you 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 were actually given access to all the graduate schools of Harvard mm-hmm. and you know you didn't you weren't just limited to studying at the public policy school so then you began to go oh my god I can study at all five schools <laughs> oh by the way and I was learning a language I was learning German at that time as well so I went to you know the German school so um, oh by the way you can actually take some classes at MIT so <laughs> you could go to MIT um, it was crazy yeah, so so I, I guess a lot of my friends who were older, they were more chilled and they, they actually just sat around talking a lot. Uh, and I didn't do that as much. I was like, I shouldn't waste my time. Don't waste time. Learn as much as you can. Go to as many courses as you can. 
uh, and I didn't build that relationship, as strong of a relationship with my peers as some of my peers had. So I guess in a sense, what you're saying is you, you really weren't as present as you should have been. Yes. And I guess yep. what would have been what 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 would have been the benefit of being present? I think I would have had stronger relationships. Uh, I don't know people like oh look your the your valuation is the valuation of your network, right? But. I really felt like I missed out on a lot of deep relationships that I could have had if I had invested more into people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why weren't you looking at that back then? That wasn't my priority back then. So you just really focused on? I just really focused on learning and doing all the things that I could never do again. Back then, I thought, yeah. Would you say that accessibility has changed now with the information age and, and knowledge availability? Or would you say that's still something very, there's a really unique proposition for going to a school like that? I, I still think it's a very unique proposition. I think as much as you want to read, I mean, in a country like Malaysia, it's still very hard to meet people who will talk about uh, Michelle Foucault to you. Yeah. And, who's and that? is that <laughs> who? <laughs> or, or be able to have a proper conversation about what's going on in Hong Kong. Yeah. Right. And, and there's just so much fear and people are not, people don't take time to really learn about what's going on mm-hmm. and they take the existing system as a given. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel that's like yeah, most people's realities because also often they just don't know better in a different context, which is also very American, right? You, Americans are very narrow-minded in, in the sense where they yeah. only know America. Yes. Until yes. Maybe Unless you go to the Bay Area or, or, the, or the coast areas, yeah, right? I think culture clashes more. But even still, like uh, for me, the reason why I went to study New York is like, oh, it's a big city. But then people just get stuck saying New York's the only thing you ever need. But the reality right. is when I left, I found out oh, there's the whole world. The whole world, yes. There's so much more going on. So, um, Okay, so the... Wow, so I guess uh, you're still you know, <laughs> absorbing knowledge. You're on your journey of social justice. And I guess that kind of led to you finishing your degree and you went to the World Bank? Yes, that was the dream. One of the dream jobs for all international students okay, so every, at the Kennedy School. Everyone's gunning for this. Everyone wants to work for the UN or the World Bank. The World Bank paid better. Um. Well, there's the World Bank and there's the IMF, right, as well. Yes, um, yes. And so I guess I guess because you were in America, it would be World Bank. Right. So I think what I think a lot of people that know. I recently learned this on another podcast is that um, after World War II, the IMF was created uh, mm-hmm. for you know economic stability. And the World Bank was also created very similar. Yeah. But I guess the, uh, that was never openly said, but I think um, it was agreed that Americans would run World Bank and Europeans would run the IMF. So oh, interesting. I, I okay. did not know that. Um, I did not know that. Yeah. Okay. So I guess uh, why you, you're why why did everyone want to go to the World Bank? What is the World Bank? It, it was a status symbol, I think. Okay, so you're chasing prestige? You're definitely up chasing prestige. Uh, I think back then, a lot of my friends, they ended up becoming, I know, chief of staff of all these like politicians or they became um, diplomats in their own right and, and they started working for the Foreign Service mm-hmm. uh, or some of them who were already uh, mid-career, they would go back be, you know, the ministers and whatnot that they are. So uh, I guess you had such high expectations. I mean, for the whole two years, they told you that you can change the world, right? Like for the whole two years, you had like, you know, Navy, your friends were Navy SEALs. Like like what? (laughs) And, and, you know, you went to the business school and half of them were military people. Uh, By the way, it was the first time I actually met people from the military. I was like, what? (laughs) Um, So, so you had really high expectations of yourself. And, and and so the World Bank, uh, being a non-American in in America was one of the, because you couldn't work for public office. It was very hard for you to go, go and work for the mayor of a country. I actually tried, so funny. I actually tried working to be, I tried to apply to be the um, criminal justice reform person for the mayor of Baltimore. 
Oh wow, that would have been amazing. That would have been amazing. Yeah. Um, so and there there's so many issues there. Don't yeah. don't get me started. If you just watch, is it Wire? The Wire. Um, the Wire, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's real, guys. It's real. Um, actually, so at, at the Kennedy School, my my major was criminal justice reform. Okay. Uh, so learning about the American criminal justice system back then, I was like, wait, I don't. You mean I don't have to go outside of America? I can just fix this, and this will take ten generations. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. So, yeah, because you, you were kind of discovered it from India, then you just rediscovered it in America. Yeah, I was like, wait, this is a problem here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is probably shocking because you have a yeah. different idea of what America was when you were abroad, right? Yes, absolutely. Your parents keep telling you it's the greatest nation in the world. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so, so, so World Bank, and, and by the way, work, I mean, getting into the World Bank is so horrible. Um, and the, and, and the only way you can get in is really, I mean, not the only way, but the primary way in which you get in is to have lots and lots and lots of coffee with people who already work in the World Bank. Because the first thing you hear is don't bother putting your ad, uh, application in mm-hmm. because no one's ever got to read it. Mm-hmm. So There's just too many applications. I never did. Okay. I never did. So you listened. I listened and I just started having coffee and it was very demoralizing because you just came out of one of the most like life changing degrees of your life and they told you you can change the world. You can become Nelson Mandela if you want to, <laughs> right? Like fight for freedom. And now you're trying to have coffees with career bureaucrats, mm. you know, just to get a three months project. Okay. So I guess yeah. you're, you're only gunning for temporary roles or you always, the only way to do it is to get temporary roles. Okay. Yeah. Ah, so that's okay. That explains why your experience was only four months. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So you actually were grinding in a sense. You were doing what you kind of missed at, at Harvard. You were networking like crazy. Probably You have to network like crazy and you end up going to this big building with no windows and everyone's in suits and you discover all the benefits you have. They get like they fly business class. They don't get taxed. They get paid by daily rates. Yeah. Uh, it's US dollars. Yeah. Uh, and then you're like, wait, what changes are you actually making? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it does shatter sort of your sense of what these global institutions are supposed to do. And by the way, I, I did my internship at the UN in Vienna um, during in the summer of uh, of my time in my degree. For your MBA and for your master's. For my master's. I went to Vienna. I joined the criminal justice reform group in Vienna because that was when the UNOC Okay, don't don't quote me, but that's where the criminal justice reform groups were working on the pirates in yeah. in, in in Africa, mm-hmm. um, and then it was it was another delusional experience again of just how many career bureaucrats mm. were were working in these institutions that seems to be changing the world. That was before the World Bank. That was before the World Bank. Okay. So I was like, okay, I'll try my hand on the UN. I try my hand on the World Bank, and they're both disappointing. Mm. Uh, How did that make you feel after getting your degree from you know, Harvard? And then you was did this feel like a failure? Did you feel like you made a mistake? Did you regret yeah. it? Yeah, I. I didn't regret doing the degree, but I was just like, how can reality and what your aspirations be so different? Yeah. And that definitely produced a lot of um, heartaches and disappointment and kind of just what am I doing with my life? Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember applying to the foreign... Uh, look, I, I was so desperate applying to the Foreign Service of Australia. Uh, for America? No, oh, for, oh, for Australia. Australia. So I was like, I, I'm going to okay. leave this place. I, yeah. I, and then I was like, yeah. you know, the, the most logical thing was to apply for foreign service. So I did. Which is, I guess that yeah. means you either become on a tour track of uh, like a, working in an embassy somewhere else. Yes, right? exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I, I ended up like getting an offer. Uh, my parents were really happy because they're like, <laughs> oh my God, we have, a, we have a diplomat or we have a foreign service person yeah. in, the, in their family. Um, but I turned it down after visiting Canberra. <laughs> I was oh, like, so you, okay, so you had to work in yeah. Canberra. 
I had to work in Canberra every two years. So every two years you get to leave the country, you get to send on a camp uh, into a foreign embassy. Yeah. And then after two years, you come back to Canberra. What is Canberra for people who don't know? Canberra is the capital city of Australia. For those of you who don't know, um, there is absolutely nothing there. Uh, it is the capital of uh, politics and porn. In porn, apparently. So apparently. All, all the politicians watching porn. I, I mean, it's PP. PP, okay. Yes, it's, it's known for politics and porn. So anyway. Um, okay, so then uh, after all this tough times you've been having, right? So your, your dreams are kind of shattered to an extent. And does did you say F that all? And you're like, I'm going to go be a capitalist and I'm going to go apply for management consulting, make a lot of money? Or how did you transition to BCG? I guess there was a little bit of that. Like I still wanted to do public sector work. So still in you. Yeah, it was still in me. Um, then I was like, okay, rather than working for a unilateral, sorry, multilateral institution like the World Bank, is there other organizations that I can join um, that can actually increase my skill sets? Mm. Um, and I remember thinking, well, if I kept working for the UN or the World Bank, I'll just get really good at report writing mm. uh, and and doing research. But really, I don't. I didn't feel like that was very inspiring. And I realized at the age of being like mid twenties at that point, uh, I wanted to actually build some skills. And lo and behold, um, there were some organizations out there that were private sector, but still worked for the public sector that apparently paid well and actually built skills. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a, it was like a, it was a no brainer for me at that point. Okay, yeah. So, so you wanted to switch uh, from report writing to PowerPoint deck presentation skills. They didn't tell me that. <laughs> they, they were saying you're going to solve some really crazy public sector problems. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, is, yeah. is that true though? So I guess um, you. So you saw this opportunity. I guess you did. You apply widely, or you only? I did. BCG? I applied widely. I applied for BCG. Um, I think Malaysia was one of the offices that did a lot of public sector work. I also applied for a KPMG in London. Also did public sector work. Um, so I did apply for a few. And you were now you were in US still, or you were back in Australia? Good question. I was back in Australia. Okay, yeah. So you were looking for opportunities. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So you applied wide and. Um, how did you come across these opportunities? I mean, because it's so different. Um, BCG Malaysia, so different from KPMG London. Uh, yes. I guess I was just putting out a very wide net. So now that I think about it, I was I started the application when I was in Washington, D.C., okay. right? Um, and then I continued the application when I went back to Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it was a combination of friends who, who were in these institutions because actually a lot of Harvard MBAs and public policy people actually went into consulting. Yeah. So it was a combination of friends who said, by the way, did you know about this? Um, to Actually, a lot of these recruiters went to the public policy school to recruit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's, is that how you got introduced yeah. to it? Okay. Yeah. And so uh, how did you end up applying and how was the interview process? Uh, it, it was very different from anything I've ever done before. So if anyone has prepared for a management consulting interview process, you will know that um, it's, it's, it's very, uh, I guess it's kind of mathematical plus business sense and I've never done that before. Uh, but it was really fun. It was a challenge. I saw that as a challenge. I was like, Hey, I'm an Asian kid. I can do math. And, and, but I, I lacked the business acumen. So I didn't know how to do case studies. I was like, what? What's revenue? What's, <laughs> what's cost? Oh, but wait, there's a formula. <laughs> um, and, and, and actually just spent a lot of time. I spent hundreds of hours analyzing case studies. Okay, so you, yeah. you really massively prepared for this. I'm massively prepared for this. I was like, it's all or nothing, uh, and I really want to do this. So I spent hundreds of hours practicing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And then uh, I guess you kind of go through different kind of tests and interviews. 
you did. You 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 got a lot of friends to interview you um, to run like case studies, um, and then I remember doing like cases. I ended up like you know applying to McKinsey, to BCG, and mm-hmm. KPMG. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I guess you eventually got into to BCG. Yes. Yeah. And uh, what what did you love about the management consulting? Did it live up to your expectations? Were you able to work on public policy? Uh, I definitely start my first case. My first few cases was actually public sector. Okay. So I, I can't tell you, but I did work on some pretty interesting cases where we're trying to build, uh, a financial, uh, a financial sector, okay. uh, That's, in KL. And, okay. So yeah. So you were accepted to BCG. Yes. KL. KL. And, and yes. Kuala Lumpur. Kuala Lumpur. Absolutely. Yeah. And did you, were you accepted anywhere else that you turned down or? Uh, I was accepted to KPMG London. Okay. I didn't get into McKinsey. It's their loss. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I, I did have a choice of going to London. Okay. I was like, that was very tempting. But I thought BCG could be a better training ground. Okay. Yeah. And then so you had these uh, interesting cases. And so what was your favorite thing about management consulting? My favorite thing is being able to work in a small team under very stressful, intense experiences uh, for months on end and forming these bond with these people. Yeah. So, so you really thrive under stress? Whew. Not anymore. <laughs> Maybe I used to, but I love the fact that you get to you get thrown a problem. Uh, you know nothing about the problem beforehand. Mm-hmm. You know nothing about the industry beforehand. And as a team, you get to work on something that's pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, you kind of get into this boiling pot uh, situation where you have to you have to swim or drown. Mm-hmm. And so you often come away swimming and learning something new and and building really great relationships. Mm-hmm. What did you hate about management consulting then? I my biggest issue was that I often didn't get to implement or didn't believe in the solutions that I was giving, or I didn't see how it was going to work in the long term. Mm-hmm. Like I believe in the solutions I was giving, but I saw that it took a lot more than just consultants telling a company what to do and leaving it at that. Does does that mean there's a gap in the market for that, or like, cause like I mean, there must be a study somewhere that uh, you have a con- you know consultation, you have a solution presented, and then X percentage that actually are successful and X percent that fail, right? Yeah. So I mean, uh, I mean, what, I guess what I'm kind of get at is like, were you actually really creating value, or were 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 these solutions really getting implemented, like you said? You know, is, is yeah. there an opportunity maybe people are missing? Creating value, yes. Sustainability, I'm not sure. Hmm. Right. So I guess they never. There was no follow-up, I guess, unless there was another case with this thing. Right, and it's expensive to hire consultants. I mean, look, the best case is if you keep the consultants forever, but I mean, that also is, you start questioning, well, yeah. why do we need consultants forever if we need to build that internal capacity ourselves? So I guess you never really found out uh, for all these kind of solutions you presented how the company is actually doing now. Have you ever done that? Um, no, I haven't. Mm. No, I haven't. And that says something, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, look, I, I hate to be on record about this, but there's a lot of political motivation of why companies hire consultants. It's usually that the CEO has an agenda. Mm-hmm. CEO has an agenda they want to complete mm-hmm. or push for X mm-hmm. or someone in the company wants to push for X. So you hire consultants to help you validate yes, that push, yeah. right? And, and and then if the CEO changes, which you often do, yeah. um, someone else has a new agenda and a new legacy they want to leave. And, and you're never working from the people from the ground up to go, hey, what do you actually need? Yeah. You know? Um, so you're always working with a middle-aged, high-paid executive who has a lot of ego to prove and show. Yeah. And then you kind of try to make their agenda 
happen. It's kind of like a, a stamp of brand approval, I guess you could say. Brand approval. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to be too, I mean, usually this is my position about consulting, but I guess I will try to play devil's advocate. I'm sure there are actual use cases where there's actually real value added and a consultant would be needed, right? Oh, definitely. It's always, it doesn't have a black and white. It's always very mixed. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I guess that brings me to my next point because I feel that a lot of young guys go, smart people, you know, right on the track, best schools, they get into consulting. Um, I don't know, maybe for, for reasons such as prestige or money, uh, but there's a pattern. After two years, they're either getting burned out and they, they will churn out, they'll do their MBA, but they never really think about why. Mm-hmm. And then after they finish their MBA, they're still not sure what they want to do afterwards. Do you kind of see this pattern of like people just going through the system, not really knowing why and um, ended up not having really purpose? Do, do, yeah. Would you agree to this? I, I definitely agree to this. I think, look, I, I'm definitely not the smartest cookie in the jar. And oh, when really? I was a when I was a consultant, I really realized that. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, wow, damn, these people are really smart. They're really sharp. Um, yeah. They can they can do mental math in a speed that I've never I've never seen before. Or they can see insights into things that mm-hmm. I can't see. Yeah. Uh, and it was amazing seeing some of these people at work. Okay. Um, and yet, most of them remain in the. In, in consulting life or, or as part of a company that they may or may not believe in. And I think it's because of the definition of success that we were talking about. They have mortgages, they have families. Company car. Company car, actually. I mean, but now there's grab, there's grab. No, no, more company car. <laughs> no more company car, but, but, but there's bonuses. Uh, yeah, right. I mean, my parents didn't even realize there was bonuses. <laughs> like that's value much more than company cars. Um, they, they, you know, there's all these other things that I think essentially trap people into a life that they suddenly realize that they can't get out of. Yeah. So, you know, consultants always say they're the most risk averse people ever. You know, they, they, they're really smart. They can do a lot of things, but they're super risk averse. And I think being an entrepreneur almost requires you to go, I don't mind failing. Mm-hmm. And no consultants want to fail. And I think that's very interesting because um, I would say in the past decade, but what we've seen for Southeast Asia specifically, because of the whole rocket internet phenomenon, mm-hmm. uh, the Samar brothers had a penchant to focus on hiring consultants. And I think it was you know, for a very specific uh, means to an end, yeah. know, to scaling in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And, I think, uh, and I think eventually a lot of these guys tried their hand at entrepreneurship, but a lot of them end up not you know, following through being very successful. I guess a few have become, you know, I guess your profile yourself, I think you're very successful. Um, so it's, it's, I think you're right, you know, there, there's a type of profile that's needed where, you know, it's, you have to be a little bit more risk averse, but, you know, a lot of consultants going in are not really that risk, you know, they're not risk taking. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's why some people end up staying longer or they end up even just going to a corporate job and not believing it, like you said. Well, I mean, the older you get, the more, the less likely you are to believe that you can change. That, that's true. Yes. Um, but I think that's a good lesson, though, I think. And what I've learned coming up to my point in this point in my career is like, uh, do, do you just you know want to give up and get the comfortable job with high pay? Or should you keep compounding your learnings and experience yeah. and just keep going? Right? Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's always compounding unless you stop. Yeah. It's like Elon Musk who, who, who ended up with like, I don't know, how the hundreds of millions that after the, the sale of PayPal and then decided yeah. to spend it all. Yeah. And I think uh, he, he compounds it to the extreme and he, he does at a much faster speed than like most, most normal, normal humans. Right. Yeah. Like keep some yeah. millions, please. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So I guess with that realization, did you have any of those thoughts as you were coming to your end of your Almost four years, right? You were there for three years, 11 years. Yeah, I was, wow, that you're good. Uh, I, I, it was definitely 
I thought about leaving actually after two years, but again, it was like we're, we're creatures of inertia, right? So mm. the minute you thought about leaving, I think the average, on average, people usually take at least another two to three years to actually leave. As long as you can maintain it, yes. <laughs> right, you're yeah. like, oh, I want to leave, oh, I don't want to leave, oh, I actually want to leave, but I can't, I can't be, I don't know what else to do. Um, How much of that was a product of people around you and people you surrounded yourself with? being in a similar position mm, did that make mm. it harder for you to leave was there a herd mentality where like oh it's i can't leave it's too risky or what if i fail or we're, we're, do you think the people around you had this effect to keep you for another two years almost well i i think the 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 herd mentality was actually to leave okay uh, yeah to leave to what then exactly so actually the herd around me then were quite entrepreneurial Okay. So I had a lot of very close friends who started thinking about running their own businesses or in fact were beginning to run their own businesses as they, and then they decided it was, it was getting, uh, there was, you know, getting traction. So they want, they were ready to leave. What, what year was this? This is year 2014. Okay. So this yeah. is actually uh, during the, the big e-commerce boom. Of yes. Big e-commerce boom, startup booms. There was like, you know, per capita, startups per capita was really high. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that means, uh, that means it's really not the case the people surrounded you were not wanting to do it. It's the exact opposite. Your cohort happened to have a lot of people who were being entrepreneurial. Yes, that's correct. Was it effect of the environment, the, the macro scene? I definitely think the the external environment influenced the rise of startups in Southeast Asia. It made it more yeah. accessible to try being risky. Yes, I think our previous cohorts, your only way out was to work in-house. In-house, okay. What yeah, mean? meaning you become a strategy, strategy officer for a big a global conglomerate, for yeah. example. Yeah. Uh, so, so, but, but at our generation, I think you suddenly had the rise of startups. Yeah. So you could either, I think after our cohort, uh, people actually started working for startups like Lazada, like Traveloka, yeah. like Shopee, yeah. because these startups suddenly had so much funding that they were able to hire yeah, consultants. They, they got over the point of risk where things were proven for someone of a yes. certain profile says, okay, there's enough. There's still some downside, probably not too much downside. If I go work for this company, then, then to be honest, the company was uh, on the curve where it's going exponential. Yeah. So that means that, uh, of course, back then you probably didn't see it. Right? Yeah. You know, and then, but they, they got onto the, the, the train, it just took off, right? So, yes. I guess it made a lot of careers eventually. Okay. Yeah. So I guess that was your thinking. And then you must have, your friends were going into business and then you were, you were already thinking of quitting after two years. Uh, yeah. And then this led to you co founding Amazing Grace. So I actually had to quit before I decided what I wanted to do. Okay. Um, so unlike a lot of the other peers uh, during my time, they they often had an idea. They started working on the idea and then they're like, okay, it's got attractions. So I'm going to quit. Um, I couldn't do that for some reason. I couldn't multitask. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So for you, you had to stop at all things. Too. I had to stop it all. I had to go, you know what? Like my time, like I was going to, you know, I had like things in my calendar, look at new business ideas, 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. Yeah. And then guess what? You're probably like working or at dinner with your colleagues from 8 to 10 p.m. Yeah. And we go home, you were really tired. Yeah. So next morning you go to client side again. So it wasn't really possible for me. I didn't know how other people did it. They were crazy yeah. um, to even start a new business idea while being a consultant. Uh, so I think that that realization made me just say I'm done. Mm -hmm. Like let's just quit. I've done it before anyway. Like I've <laughs> kind of like gone to India and yeah. quitting my other stuff. So it, it wasn't you know I think that gave me some courage to do it again. And uh, I remember going quitting, going back to Australia, spending some time with my family. 
ended up taking up a yoga teaching course. So I actually became a yoga teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, and, I, and I know this sounds very typical. Oh, yeah, you went to find yourself and everything. But yeah, it was, it was necessary. Eat, pray, love. Um, eat, pray, yoga. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so then you had this uh, period of rest, and then how, how did this? Well, did what were you doing, and then how did Amazing Grace come about then? Yeah, so I knew I wanted to do something in health because one of the things that bothered me as a consultant was just how unhealthy working people were. Okay. So as young people, especially, I was like, colleague A will say they have a perennial back problem from sitting too long. Colleague B just put on so, you know a lot of weight. Colleague C lost a lot of weight. Colleague D had gout, mm. you know, and colleague EFG or had gastric, mm. you know, from yeah. Um, eating improper, you know, eating at improper times and, and what they were eating. So it, it, it really did bother me. And I was like, this is not right. Mm-hmm. You know, we, as a society, especially affluent, high paying professionals, you're suffering from a health perspective. Yeah. Uh, so then I did a bit of research and I realized Malaysia was actually the fattest country in Asia <laughs> with 50% of the adult population being either overweight or obese. And I think either one in three or one in four people, adults uh, have diabetics, mm-hmm. you know, mostly diabetic too. Uh, type two. So it was, it was like, I was, I was very, very, uh, convicted at that point. I was like, I would really like to do something around health. And, um, at that point, I didn't want to work for big organizations. I didn't want to go back into big corporates. Um, so it was the culture, I think. So after working with so many big corporates, I realized that I didn't want to build, I want to build something that didn't resemble a big corporate culture. Right, this whole top-down hierarchy, this whole big departments everywhere, and then the chairman's words is is like you know holy bible, and everyone's too scared to say anything really, and it got so political. I mean, at the root of any problem, I think is people with any organizations. So, I mean, if you want a consultant to come in and solve some things, you probably have a lot of people issues Mm. at that point, right? So people feel. You know, it's just, it was just management and leadership and lack of that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the things that, I, that drove me to want to start my own company was that I wanted to take the opportunity to build a company that was different, mm-hmm. which is very convicting because sometimes I, I, I forget that. Well, it, it seems to be these are thematically for you. That seems to be the case. You have this uh, notion of a, an idea, an ideal, right? Social justice reform or yeah. just general injustice. Uh, you go try to attack the problem. And I guess yeah. you saw the same thing. You saw a pain point. You saw a problem. Yeah. Uh, it bothered you. And maybe it ties back to your very early days when you were more of a chubby kid as well, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So yeah. you kind of pinpoint that. And then uh, you, it's your personality. You tie into a conviction and you attack, right? So I guess yeah. that's what happened. Yes. Um, did you know what – so you already knew that you want to be in health and you know this problem. How did you end up productizing it and getting to the idea of what – Amazing grazes today. Yes, we did it all by accident, as all companies start off as. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually said, "Okay, Malaysians, mm, health. Where do we start? Let's start with food." <laughs> what was the story of we? Uh, ah, yes. So, uh, my business partners, the founders of Amazing Grace, were all mutual friends of people at BCG. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so again, BCG was a great place for you to meet people that can change your life in the future. So these were all friends of close friends at BCG who already then 
gave you some social proof that these people were trustworthy and 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 could be business partners. Um, so it was over dinner one night when I met Ching, mm-hmm. and Chin and I. Ching's like, "Hey, what are you up to?" And I'm like, "Ah, oh, teaching yoga, running a yoga studio, <laughs> also looking at bringing some health food from Australia because you know there, there's a lot of health food in Australia, and I don't think there's a lot in Malaysia." And she's like, "Cool, that's really interesting. You want to talk?" Um, I'm also thinking of doing something around health and food. So, um, so we got together. We went to the supermarket. We looked at what was available. And I think one realization we just had quickly was just how boring Australian products were. So it was at a time when I felt very convicted about being Asian. And I think this whole identity thing coming back again, which is to say, why is it that we think Western products or, I don't know, white people products, if I can say that, um, is better? Yeah. Right. As Asians, we always think they're more superior, yeah. both in people and culture and products. Yeah. Uh, so why can't we appreciate the Malaysian or the Asian flavors and ingredients and culture mm-hmm. and do something that really people can relate to? Mm-hmm. So we, we, we brainstormed and we said, we're not going to bring in products from Australia because it really is boring and bland and yeah. really doesn't speak to people here. If you really want people to change the way they eat or live, healthier lives you want to give them something that they know and can relate to mm-hmm. so taste and local flavors really became something that we focused on from a food perspective and product perspective mm-hmm. yeah. so it seems like to have a lot of insight uh is, is this just um the process of talking a lot together or how did you come to those conclusions was it was it you know, more was it more methodical or just like this is my conviction and we're sticking to that and then creating the product yeah um I think it was also looking at um, that there wasn't that product available in the market. So we were really inspired by companies that really did fancy flavors or really innovative flavors with their products. But we said, wait, no one's using Southeast Asian flavors to, you know, make nuts or, or even granola or, or the snacks that they ate. Um, or it was really low quality junk food yeah. that so people had available. Two, two spectrums. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay, so and I guess uh, that led to you eventually uh, coming up with a, a product line for foods. Mm-hmm. So you ended up coming up with a few different SKUs and testing it in a few months. And then um, how did you end up launching your first product? We we wanted to do nut mixes, flavored nut mixes first. And then we said, by the way, we should maybe just test a granola because uh, we were pretty sure that nut mix was the answer to healthy snacking, right? Okay, because so- it was high in protein, high in good fats and low in carbs and whatnot. So, okay, so yeah. you're following a process where you, you're sticking to the problem. We're sticking to the problem. And then yep. you're, you're trying to find a solution on the problem and working backwards. Yes, and, and say what do people want yes. exactly. So let's fix healthy. Let's fix eating, yeah. right? Let's um, encourage people not to eat junk food. Yeah. Uh, so so yeah. So we started experimenting using curry leaves. We started experimenting using pandan, uh, using kaya, using um, gula malaka, like yeah. things that were really native to the people here. And by the way, I'm not even Malaysian. So, yeah. you know, I even thought these flavors were native to me at that point, yeah. right? Yeah. So I was like, wait, why can't you see that these flavors are really good yeah. and you should do something about them? Um, so I guess you, you sometimes need an external perspective. Yeah. It's, it's like yeah. uh, when you take a person to solve a problem who's never been in that space before, you, you're not, you don't have tunnel vision, right? Yeah. You bring a new perspective and innovate. Innovation yes. is allowed to happen because you don't have those 
rules that you have to follow, right? Yes. And local Malaysians just think, oh, that's my everyday food. Why would I put it here? But this, I guess it's taking two different worlds, putting together to create new value. Right? Absolutely. It's, it's an idea generation. Yeah. Uh, yeah so, so we started uh, making our own nut mixes. I've never had baking experience or really culinary experiences before this. Um, Ching had some kind of culinary experience and, and catering experience. Um, and then we, we paid a graphic designer who was a freelancer and we said, give us a label, give us a logo. We really want to stick it around a jar and then go to a market. Mm. So the idea Asian process started in April. We made, we started making our products, uh, April 2015. Uh, the idea Asian process. And then we started just like playing around with recipes. Uh, and then in July, I think we had our labels and in August we debuted with our four flavors, four products, two nuts and two granola in BSC and yeah. a weekend market. Yeah. So, you know, going from, I don't know, social justice to our teaching and model UN to social justice to uh, World Bank to BCG now selling. On the weekend markets, markets uh, was, was crazy. It was such a crazy transition. How, how did you feel about that? Did you think it was beneath you or what were you thinking at the time? I definitely was embarrassed at times. Yeah. I was like, oh, what if people see me? <laughs> what if people knew me? Yeah. And they were like, what, what the heck are you doing? And I, and I, and I did, I, and I do remember some friends, some close friends um, at BCG did ask my partner, Andrew, is, is Amy okay? <laughs> You're okay with her doing this? You know, I do think a lot of people back then probably thought it was beneath um, us as a group identity to be doing this prestigious group of consultants who are right. well paid and, who are well paid and only only walking suits and yeah. you know working beautiful glittery corporate buildings yeah. um yeah so so i was slightly embarrassed but i got so much joy from people sampling the, the the products that we made and going wow this is really good tell me more and and you know some of them end up buying it and 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 then buying more of it i think that joy and the reward of seeing someone um, loving a product and solving a problem that they have um, surpasses any kind of ego mm -hmm. that one may have. Yeah. How, so, I mean, I remember the very early days, you were, guys were always constantly going to the markets. You were always pushing sales and I guess getting to people's hands, getting feedback. At what point did you know you had a very good, strong product market fit? Was that an idea that ever crossed your mind? It was the very first market that we were in. I think we made about 600 products, packets, mm -hmm. and it was sold out by, by the end of it. And people didn't even know what it was. People mm -hmm. were like, what's a granola? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that's when we knew, like, hey, people really like this. People mm -hmm. were willing to pay for this. And, and yeah. I think we could keep, keep, keep trying. And, yeah. and that was achieved through selling like a weekend markets. Yes. Weekend. Yes. Yeah. It, it really, I think the, the moment of truth is when, if someone is willing to pay for this. Yes. Yeah. And I guess uh, the fact that you were constantly getting sold out was a very good signal of strong product market fit. Yes. And that, did that give you the confidence? It definitely did. It was our markets. Unfortunately, you can't do any markets today. Yeah. But markets was our um, market entry channel. Yeah. It wasn't doing focus groups. It wasn't even you know, doing digital marketing. Yeah. It was actually real life selling. Yeah, making, yeah. making the products, uh, making X amount, taking it, take it to the market and pushing yeah. sales. And, and getting direct customer feedback. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess that gets to the point where, you know, you, you end up start to scaling the business then, right? Yes. And uh, I, I think you guys raised money only one time. 
yes, we've, we've raised money only one time. Um, there was many different points of scaling. So I would say our first point of scaling was actually just moving out from the home kitchen into uh, the small baking unit that we had yes. in, in Sentul. Um, so 700 square feet, uh, one oven and, you know, uh, five to six workers. Um, so that was the first point of scale because – at that point, I could go out and do marketing. I could go out and do the selling. Yeah. Uh, and the second point of scale was when we realized actually even that space was too small and we needed a size that's 10 times bigger. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we, we, we had, uh, we're very lucky. We had angel investors who really liked our products, who had a similar vision for, uh, vegetarian healthy food. Mm-hmm. And, and and gave us some money to to move into our new production center. Are we allowed to disclose how much that was? Or? Yeah, uh, we raised about two point four million ringgit. Ringgit. Yeah. Uh, I guess divided by four. four it's about six hundred thousand USD. 000 yeah. USD, right? Yeah. And I guess uh, from six hundred thousand USD, uh, I guess how about now? You guys scaled that to how many markets now are you in? We are in about. Four to five markets, I would say. Like two two markets are where we are really significant. So Malaysia and Singapore are where we have our roots. Mm-hmm. And then I think just starting late last year to this year, we've entered Philippines. Uh, we are in Brunei. Uh, we're already in Australia. Um, and we're talking to potentially starting off in Taiwan as well. Yeah. And then ballpark figures, are you allowed to release any revenue figures? Uh, I guess so. I guess we've been doing about 600,000 USD a month. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, from initial investment of uh, 600,000 mm-hmm. about, now you're doing that almost every single month. So that's a pretty good return for the investors. I, I hope so. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you guys are in a scaling phase where you're opening up more countries, uh, experimenting with other products, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so that, that sounds like a pretty amazing story because I think uh, I, I like your story and the, the co-founder's story of Amazing Grace because I feel a lot of guys are uh, trying to do startups and, and they kind of work backwards. They try to raise a huge amount of money without a strong product market fit. They try to kind of scale, scale, scale. They go in circles and they end up shutting down. Whereas, you know, your story is that you guys kind of really starting up from grassroots, you know, finding a pain point, really getting product market fit before you raise. And then, you know, you're getting to the point where you already moved to a facility that's what over six thousand, six thousand square feet, eight thousand square, square feet, square yeah, feet from six hundred square feet, right? uh, seven hundred so square feet, so ten feet, more than ten x, yeah. 10X. And already, you guys are looking to move to a new facility within four or five years to something, and that's also bigger. looking at ten x, yeah, yeah, which is more than an acre, of, yeah, of the next yeah. factory size, yeah, right? yeah. Uh, so it's, you guys are going through exponential scaling, and you kind of done it through a way that I have a lot of respect for, which I think is quite amazing. You know, I think uh, you don't hear these kind of stories. Um, so I guess that brings me to my next point. Why do you think you guys have been so successful then? We, look, I, I can, I think every part of growth uh, has been hard and it hasn't been accidental. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've been around for just under five years. I think we're going to celebrate our five-year anniversary next month. Uh, that, so that's really fun. I, I think the success has been just being quite grounded and focusing on what we believe in. So what does that mean, right? That means, uh, you know, there were times we were tempted to be everything for everyone mm. and almost becoming like a marketplace. Yeah. And then just realizing, wait a minute, uh, why do we, we are a brand and we make certain products particularly well. We should focus on doing what we do best as opposed to try to 
be everything. And I think it's really weird to come from me because I am an everything person. <laughs> um, I do want to do a lot of things. I'm kind of schizophrenic or ADHD in that way. I have the 10 million business ideas at the same time. But it's really having the mindset of building a brand that people can trust, that we make, you know, we, we do increase our product line, but only at the right times where we already have a stable set of products that we're proud of. Yeah. Um, and constantly, uh, I guess, creating solutions for our customers um, every day, like just thinking about, hey, what would they like? What would our customer like when they go to work? Yeah. What would our customer like? What's their problem point? What's the pain point when they're picking up their kids? Or what's the pain point when we go to the gym? Um, how do we make that more accessible for them? So it's it's really being, I guess, problems focused. And I guess the other thing is really owing to the team and the founders and the um, amazing team that we have, which is actually very, I mean, most of the senior management is women. Mm. And I guess we have a very honest culture with each other where we don't, um, we, we, we don't paint, you know, sweet coat things. We actually tell it as it is. Uh, we're very straightforward. We have a very high performance culture. And yet we have a very passionate culture where people are doing this because they really believe in what they're doing. Yeah. So I think it's a high performance culture and, uh, we are pushing ourselves to the best to, to do, um, more than what an Asian company can do. And I always come back to the point, like we can do better than an American company. We can do better than an Australian company mm-hmm. from quality, design, um, yeah. marketing, everything. Yeah. yeah. I like that because I think that's one of the main drivers why I wanted to do this podcast. You know, in the yeah. past 10 years, so much things have changed. And, um, you know, we do, I still take a huge amount of learnings from you know, Silicon Valley mm-hmm. and all those guys who create these amazing platforms for learning. But equally so, there's a lot of innovation happening here. You know, there's a lot of amazing talent and stories that we need to share. And I think you're, you're one of the best examples for that. So, and, and I guess I want to distill what you're saying. It comes down to this, right? It comes down to uh, focusing on a niche. Right, making sure you do that niche very well, building a machine that can be scalable and repeatable. Eventually, you want to create a playbook around that too. When you open up to more markets on the same core products that work really well, mm-hmm. and it's the people behind that, right? It's the talent driving that behind that, and fostering the right culture that can scale with the product and the business. Yes, yeah. and instilling a sense of pride in them because yes. they're achieving something that yes. they haven't done before. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I guess. Uh, I guess my take on that, and I, I think. Uh, my view of why Viewvo has been very successful is what you kind of touched on before. You said you're a schizophrenic and you want to do a million things at the same time, which I think that frustrates some people. Right? Yeah. It's hard to kind of deal with if you have always trying to throw ideas ideas out there and, you know, uh, you're not focusing. It seems that way, right? Yeah. But I think that's been an important part, you know, and I think Jeff Bezos says this a lot. You want to be trying and experimenting a lot very early on so that when it's earlier on, you're risking less. So if you fail, you don't fail massively where it's going to destroy the whole company. Yeah. Right. And I think there's a lot of patterns of, it sounds like you have a very nice successful story, but the truth is there's so many more failed products and so mm-hmm. many more failed stores behind that we're not yeah. even talking about, which we could talk some other episodes in the future. Right. So I think um, part of that is your ability to want to experiment and try all these different ideas, which is important. But on the flip side of that is, you know, the, the push and pull, you have a partner, which is Sabrina, who is very grounded, to kind yep. of make that work, yep. right? You know, if you have an idea, you need someone who can actually make it feasible and execute it, yep. right? Because if you just throw out this and there's no way to do it, then it's also not going to get done. Yep. Uh, if you don't know the real constraints or what's feasible, you may try it and risk everything and then you actually come to a problem where you can't go backwards anymore. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, one of the reasons why you're successful is you are always pushing to the limits, but, you know, you have a very good partner Who's, who's able to, to ground the idea or to try their best to make it happen. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I do think the the founding team and the people who are working together and the kind of selflessness and the humility they bring into the relationship yeah. there is what has made us successful. Absolutely. I mean, it goes both yeah. ways. You guys yeah. both did an amazing job, and I think it's uh, if that's one lesson to pull from this, you know, if you get the foundation correct, um, you know, beyond everything else, if you if you guys are solid, you could probably figure it out along the way and pivot. Absolutely. I guess that brings us to a, you know a good place to end this. So, um, how how can we help you? What are you looking for? I know you're always hiring. I know you're looking for a new factory space. So, if there's anyone in real estate for factories, uh, any new products, or what would you want to talk about? Yeah, um, yeah. I guess if you if you you know obviously we're all looking for mentorship. So if someone is like, hey, you know, I've been through something similar to what you do, and I have some advice to offer, you know, that's something that we would love to hear from people. How can we reach you? How can you reach me? Um, um, email me, uh, email me at, or, or, uh, just email the company. We have a contact, uh, and, and all emails that con- goes to the company also comes to me. Um, but my email is amy at amazinggraze.co, co. C-O. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then I think, yeah, so we, we are hiring for talents all the time. So if you're, if you are passionate and you have a talent that, you know, uh, you would love to work with us at, whether it's marketing or sales or operations or production and whatnot, um, logistics, um, finance, the full range, um, please email me at the same email. Uh, and yeah, so, so keep throwing us ideas, keeping, keep giving us feedback. I think it's really important that we keep our products honest, that we keep the quality high. So if you just keep working with us and making sure that we do the best for, for you and for our customers, then yeah, keep us, keep us accountable. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Alex. Really enjoy this. Thank you. Bye. Hey listeners, Amy's story almost sounds like the typical on-the-right-track kind of profile if you didn't look carefully. She got top grades, went to a great undergraduate school, went to Harvard University, worked at the World Bank, and got into one of the best management consulting firms in the world, and managed to successfully build a food startup. However, underneath her profile is anything but typical. Her early struggles in communist China and life as an economic immigrant had a huge impact on how she viewed the world. The world was simply unjust, and she tried to manifest it in a big way, which led to life-changing experiences of her leaving her comfort zone many times across Europe, US, and India. Even though it seems like she was jaded, she still kept her ideals and tried to make a big impact while moving to the private sector. As she kept iterating her journey, she found out she needed to get her hands dirty to finally be fulfilled. Amy's innate nature of writing wrong was a powerful motivator in finally manifesting a great product to a tough problem that has been having a huge impact in the Asia region and beyond. Amazing Grace is poised to grow to many other regions and countries in the coming years. Thanks for listening and see you back here for next week's episode. If you like this episode and want to hear more content like this, please share it on social media and go to entrepreneursofasia.com slash podcast and give us some feedback.